You're listening to an Anderson Entertainment production. This episode, we'll be taking a sideways look at flashy vehicles in Fab Facts. I'll be back in the randomizer. And it's time for Leftovers, part two of our Archive Anderson recording from 1981. Oh, I love Leftovers. That's all coming up in pod 135 of the Yummy Anderson Podcast. Tasty. Let's get started. Let's go. Spectrum is green. The Jerry Anderson Podcast with Jamie Anderson and Richard James. Hello! Ah, hello! Are you by any chance Richard Einstein James? Well, I am. And are you by any chance Jamie Lionel Anderson? You are correct there. And I think over there, lying down next to the chaise long, which is a bit weird, I don't know why he's not on it, is Chris Randomizer Dale. Hang on. Yes, he seems to be tapping at the floor and he's got some sort of stethoscope or something. I think he might be... Is he listening out for Death Watch Beetle or something? I don't know what he's going... What are you doing? <laughs> Who knows what he's doing? Yes. But what we do know is that we're all doing the Jerry Anson podcast, and that is this that you're listening to right now. Yeah, that's true. This must be about oh, 135 or so. That sounds yeah. like a really reliable estimate, Rich James. Yeah, so, it does, doesn't Assuming it? that the person who's listening to this, yes, that's you, might never have heard the previous 134 Jerry Anson podcasts, what are they mm. in for in this treat of an audio experience? Well, they're in for the ride of a lifetime. Core. Uh, in other words, Chris Dale's amazing randomizer. A little later on, we've got uh, emails from our listeners who have been emailing it, uh, in at uh, podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk. We've got some messages from their Facebook group where they've been posting at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash posterons. Uh, I'll be popping over to YouTube and Twitter to see what people have been saying about the Jerry Anderson podcast and all things Jerry Anderson. We've got Fab Facts coming up in just a moment. And as ever, some Jerry Anderson newsy news news news. Oh, yeah. We've always got that, haven't we? There's always plenty going on. And, as we said in our little introduction there, some Christmas leftovers. Yes, Yum. absolutely. Oh. So before Christmas and before our two episodes reviewing uh, the, the whole of 2020, we had the first half of an archive recording from 1981 from a mini and a fan convention. Yes. Uh, courtesy of Mark Jones, friend of the podcast. And we are going to have the rest of that this episode. So nice. that's quite exciting, I think. That's great. Yeah, brilliant. Now, Richard James, it's yes. been a little while. It has. We did some recording before the break, and now we're back, mm-hmm. and um, it feels like getting into a really comfy pair of slippers. It does, doesn't it? And slightly cheesy like them too. <laughs> so part of that comfort will be the fact that every week we have a section called Fab Facts. Every week, without fail. Now, time for this week's Fab Facts. Fab Facts, yeah. Richard James's favourite segment... Yeah. Takes place each week when I have a book about of fab now. facts. About now, yeah. yes. I have a book of fab facts. You can hear it here. And it uh, I flick through the book like that. And at a random point, Richard James shouts fab, which stops me flicking. And on that page, hopefully, will be a fab fact, which I'll read to you. And you'll exclaim, cool, that's a fab fact. Or, right, okay. Maybe well, you I'll won't. see. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll be the judge of that and the jury. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, here we go for some flicking. Now. Fab! Mm. Hmm. What a lovely place to stop. What, the end? Is that no. it? Don't move on now. Yeah, she did that, the news. And that oh. brings us to the end of this week's no, no. <laughs> no uh, we are in the mid-60s here on the cusp right. of Thunderbirds. Oh. Which is a very exciting time in the world of Anderson, yeah. I say. But I'm going to give you one word to kick us off. Fireflash. Right. So, right now, most Anderson fans are imagining in their mind's eye the very exciting, iconic first episode of Thunderbirds and the classic rescue of the Fireflash airliner by Thunderbird 2's elevator cars, aren't you? Yeah, of course. Let's think of another iconic Thunderbirds vehicle. Not one of the main ones, but a guest vehicle. Right. Sidewinder. Oh. Ooh. Now, not as popular, second episode of Thunderbirds, Pit of Peril, but ah. I bet you can imagine it clearing the trees out the way, toppling yep. into the pit, the fire, all that oh, sort of stuff. Yeah, great. But did you know that those two iconic Thunderbirds vehicles were not the first place that Anderson fans actually saw those two vehicles? Get away. Mm. So you'd think immediately Thunderbirds, but no. They were first seen in a Stingray story. Not oh, on television, I hasten right. to add, but within the pages of the TV Century 21 comic. Ah, gotcha. So the comic's second Stingray comic strip, which ran from issue 8 to issue 14, opened with a Fireflash airliner being shot down over a South American jungle by an underwater alien race called mm -hmm. the Crustavans. Oh, right. It could have been Crustavons, but I'm assuming it's a play <laughs> on crustaceans. So yeah, that's good. Let's say Crustavans. <laughs> Stingray is called in to investigate in the story and is carried to the danger zone by a sidewinder, or uh, the jungle uh -huh. cat, as it's called in the story. Okay. Now, the first three Stingray comic stories all included stills from the television series as part of the action. Every half a dozen panels or so, there would be a screenshot to make it feel like you were watching an episode of the show, uh, except in colour rather than black and white. And yeah. so... In addition to being realised by uh, Ron Embleton, the famous TV21 artist, uh, lovely work from, uh, from Ron, the Fireflash and the Sidewinder were both represented by screenshots from the as-yet-unaired Thunderbirds. I see. That's weird. Yeah, isn't it? The Crustavons story. I, I really want to call them the Crustavons, actually, on second yeah. uh, approach, but who knows? Yeah, I like Crustavons. Uh, but the story yeah. about those crusty, uh, crusty people ran from March to April 1965 which means it uh -huh. started a full six months before Thunderbirds appeared on television. Oh. And it was one of the first hints in the comic of Stingray's imminent successor, although readers at the time wouldn't have realised that. No. But nor would they have taken particular note of the photograph that appeared on the cover of issue five of the comic, which was Stingray cruising past a beautiful and soon to be very, very famous island in the Pacific. Get away, Tracy Island. Yeah, there's a great, ah. there's a great, quite well known picture of uh, of Stingray in the foreground, Tracy Island ah, in the background, yes, looking, yes. you know, looking quite serene actually. But yeah, yes, nobody would have known that. then Beautiful. that they were seeing the nope. the base of the upcoming uh, yep. international rescue team. Absolutely. There you yeah. go. Isn't that lovely? 
That's great. Because now, if that sort of thing happened now, people will be all over it. They'd be, you know, coming up with theories about why stuff yes. appears and oh, how they link be together. YouTube and... videos about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or just on those two stills, there would probably <laughs> yeah. be at least 100 20-minute plus YouTube <laughs> videos examining them and the models and the styling and why they probably came from a different series because of this and that. Anyway. Yeah. Pretty cool, actually. Wow. And, you know, just really lovely that they were those models, those vehicles were incorporated by the guys at um, TV Century 21 because it, it was all really under the same roof. So yes, absolutely, the, you know, Alan Fennell, the, the editor and, and the rest of the team, I suppose, would have seen these models and thought, cool, they're rather lovely. Let's put them into Stingray. Yes. It's nice. And also sort of gives greater weight exactly to the whole kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the expanded Jerry Anderson universe. Absolutely. Yes. Feel. Although that obviously Lovely. wasn't the intention from the, no, the TV no, no. side, but it, uh, no. it became more and more the intention on the comic side. Yeah. So did you know that already, uh, Podstrons? Had you seen the crusty uh, aliens shooting down Fire Flash in the comic originally and maybe you did know, maybe you had a sixth sense that uh, mm. these were from a new series that you hadn't even seen yet. Mm. Anyway, that's the sort of fab fact that we cover in Fab Facts. I think you'll agree yeah. that these facts are pretty fab. Mm, okay. Okay, Richard. Well, even though you disagree, that brings us to the end of this week's... Crusty, Crusty Fact! fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, that doesn't sound too great, does it? I know, Crusty Fact, it reminds me of my Christmas lunch. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yes, you're listening to the Jerry Anderson Podcast. Now, look, before we go any further, whatever you do, you must subscribe to us on whichever platform you're listening to us on, and that way you'll be sure of uh, catching every single episode as it appears. Also, you can uh, leave us a nice rating. That's a review and a rating to let us know what you think of the show, and maybe even copy the link and paste it to all your social media profiles and perhaps even email a few friends to let them know where we are, what we do, and how long we're here for. And they might enjoy it too. Also, you can get in touch. Podcast.jerryanderson.co.uk is the email. And over Christmas and New Year break, we had lots of messages from uh, lots of podsterons. For example, Chris Yost got in touch to say, I've been wondering this for a long time. Why was the opening narration for Captain Scarlet changed to a warning that he is indestructible and you are not, and you rather are not, don't try to imitate him? Were their kids actually playing Captain Scarlet and taking the play so far as to be believing that they were indestructible too? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Were you aware that that was added later, Jamie? It was certainly one of the variations. I see. I don't know if it was actually like used a lot. I think it might have been used in some uh -huh. reasons. I, I'm honestly not sure. You know who will know? Chris Randomizer Dale. But unfortunately, he's very busy down oh. there by the chaise long. I don't know what, what he's up to. doing? Yeah, well, he's rolled up the carpet now. He's rolling up the carpet and don't make a mess, up Chris. Floorboard. That's well, very strange. Hope, when he's put it all back, I'll ask him, yeah. and uh, hopefully okay. we, can, we can get an answer there. All right. Chris Hicks uh, wrote in to say, Hi, Richard. I tweeted you earlier today, and indeed he did. He says, regarding a trivia tidbit I thought you might be interested in. Mm. As the subject of the email might suggest, and it said at the top of the email, yeah, it concerns the launching sequence of Thunderbird 1. I'd like to draw your attention to the screen grabs I've attached. In the first one, you can see Thunderbird 1 begin its descent down into the launch bay backwards, like it did every time, as illustrated by the arrow, which he very handily drew in for me. However, in every single episode, halfway down the descent, Thunderbird 1 has magically turned to the left, carrying on its descent and finding its way into launch position sideways. Demonstrated, he says, by my second image. H how has nobody ever picked up on this? Is it facing, a, or rather, it is facing a completely different way by the time it reaches the launch pad? Worth making a video? Says Chris. <laughs> Thanks for reading. 
Chris, well, you know, absolutely congratulate you on your eagle-eyedness, yes. but I'm afraid you are not the first and you will not be the last to ah, point out this little bit of continuity. There we are. Now, I think there are various theories that there is, in fact, a 90-degree turntable on the launch platform and it turns okay. as it descends. It's just one of those things, isn't it, really? I mean... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. There's, there, there are all sorts. Once you start to really pluck at um, uh, shows like Thunderbirds, things that, like around the scale of Thunderbird 2, for example, which right, constantly changes between shots, yeah. uh, and things like Thunderbird 1 uh, rotating uh, as it yeah. descends down the ramp, we just have to sort of let it slide, really. I think yeah. the show is so good that we can forgive little things like that, can't we? Exactly, exactly. And uh, finally for now, but we will be coming back to some more emails later, here's just a couple of thoughts uh, about uh, the uh, anniversary of Jerry's passing on Boxing Day, for example. Uh, Ian Thompson says, Hi, Jamie. As someone who lost his father in my mid-teens many, many years ago, my thoughts go out to you and your family today. So he wrote this on Boxing Day. Regarding your father's legacy and what he gave us, I grew up during the original Supermarionation era, so I'm always drawn to that, with the possible experience exception of the kid with glasses got to agree with Jamie there he says <laughs> but something that I've learned mostly throughout your podcasts is that your dad when making all the shows uh, that he and the fantastic teams behind him he didn't talk down to kids in the audience and watching back the old shows I can see that now now that I have grandkids of my own and having watched some of today's TV with them it would seem to be something that's rarely repeated today perhaps some of the kids TV show planners should be taught the Jerry way and then their shows may stand up over 50 years and people will be talking about them then and on a similar vein rob pollard uh, messaged us on boxing day to say i'm about to raise a glass or in this case five in memory of your father the great man himself his programs gave me an immense pleasure as a four-year-old in 1966 and still do as an almost 59 year old in 2020 he'd be so proud of what you've achieved i just know it may his legacy continue uh, wishing you a happy new year and let's hope he says that it can start and get better as 2020 has been a very strange time and that's from Rob Pollard. Aww, so there we are. Lovely. Yeah, I mean, Thank it's you. a bit late in the day. I know it's a couple of weeks ago now, but we did have lots and lots of messages. And of course, on Twitter, the hashtag Cheers Jerry Anderson went down a storm on Boxing Day. So I just thought I'd read out those couple of messages. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who uh, messaged on the day. Hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands. Yep. We were yeah. trending in the UK from <laughs> nice. uh, sort of eight in the morning with Cheers Jerry Anderson, which is really rather lovely. All these years on. Yes, so early in the morning. It does rather, you know, point to the fact that a few people started a bit early, didn't they? <laughs> I, don't cheers. I don't think they were all drinking. No? I, I think oh, we're I see, using cheers as, as thank I you. See. But um, <laughs> yes, thanks for that, Richard James. Lovely stuff. Thank you all. I'm sure there'll be more messages later. Is that right, Richard? Yep. Oh, yes, of course. Okay, well, while we wait for more of those messages, shall we have some Jerry Anderson news? Oh, yes. Off we go. Richard, I know yeah. Yeah. you are a fan of uh, of this section, and it's been a while oh, yeah. since you've said your famous newsworthy moniker. It's true. Is that is, is moniker the right thing? Probably not, no. Yeah, she's a lovely girl. <laughs> just, Old newsworthy moniker. Lovely. Just say it. Newsy, news, news, news. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> right. So as well as loving some newsy, news, 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 you are also a fan of Space 1999, Richard. It's Isn't that true. right? Yes. Yes. Uh, although you'll never forgive your sister for vomiting on your eagle. 
I'm so glad you remember that. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. That's the story of Richard James travelling somewhere <laughs> and his sister getting carsick and throwing yeah. up in a bucket, which also yeah. happened to contain his dinky eagle. Yes. Poor Richard. Well, Richard, true. now you're a grown-up. Barely. You can sort of feel like you're transporting yourself to Moonbase Alpha for real. Right. Uh, because now available for pre-order and uh, coming probably in the next month or so, a replica top sort of uniform top what for uh commander john koenig and eagle oh. pilot alan carter so you oh, know the, the one colored sleeve oh, and the fantastic co- the collar detail and the stripe for koenig and the single colored um sort of orangey ochery uh sleeve yeah. for alan carter so they will be uh, a limited edition that will be available for pre-order now or very shortly uh, if it isn't already and they'll be hopefully arriving sort of i guess mid late february maybe very early march but uh, do go along and uh, and pre-order one of those and i'm pretty sure there'll be a deal on getting both if you want to spend half your time commanding and the rest of it crashing eagles and will the uh, will the bergman cosplay come with a free skull cap and a pair of sideburns (laughs) (laughs) i think it would be criminal if we didn't do that Uh, but let's wait and see and now this this marks the start of a, a load of cool new stuff which is coming throughout the year thanks to our new deal with ITV Lovely. Uh, Richard as you know as we were discussing before this there is some really rather cool bits and pieces coming yeah. and will be every month for the foreseeable future so um, nice. stand by for action uh, now I will also mention uh, I believe this is also an exclusive to the podcast for the 28th of January which is the 60th anniversary of Supercar there will be a very special very 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 limited edition uh, Supercar 60th Anniversary Collector's Box Set becoming available, oh. which will contain a specially recovered DVD set, a Supercar Pilot's License replica, a uh, ah. Supercar badge, as you would have got from the Supercar Club in the 1960s, and also Ooh. four brand new art cards, which we have newly commissioned from uh, a couple of artists. More details nice. on that soon. Really lovely stuff. So keep an eye out for that pre-order as well, because I think we're limiting it to just 300 boxes worldwide. Crikey! Well, Supercar's a bit of a, a special niche piece, yeah, and uh, we want to celebrate yeah. it, but uh, hopefully that will uh, be exciting for the Supercar yeah. fans out nice. there. The Tracy Brothers and Parker from Big Chief Studios are finally in stock, having made mm-hmm. their way through all the port troubles and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's taken a very, very long time, but uh, if you pre-order one, it should be with you pretty much now, or it'll be in the post. If you want to grab one, we've got extremely limited stock of the Tracy Brothers. Something around 10 each of those left, maybe less. Mm. A few more Parkers, but Parker obviously is extremely popular, so I expect he'll disappear fairly quickly too, so go and grab those. Uh, While you're there, there's a January sale going on. 20% off a load of stuff at the Jerry Anderson store where we make space for all the cool upcoming goodies that we're going to be developing and releasing over the coming year. If you'd like some free visual entertainment, uh, then I suggest you check out the latest series of Century 21 Tech Talk. Yes. Narrated by John Culshaw as Ed Bishop <laughs> in his later years, mm-hmm. talking about all sorts of vehicles from the world of Jerry Anderson, particularly focusing on UFO and Terrorhawks, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and finally, for this news segment, unless you are going to add anything else on at the end, Richard James? No, I'm not. Good. Anderson Insiders is getting a relaunch in due course. If you're already rem- a member, you will be getting an email in the next few weeks inviting you to a free month to the new insiders which will be integrated into the jerry anson store um oh. make it a much more sort of fluid and contiguous experience is that the right <laughs> word it's certainly Great. a word yeah so you'll be getting some more stuff there and that will then give you access to all sorts of extra bits and pieces and automatic 
discounts on the store and all sorts of other stuff like that. And I will be inviting a few people, such as David Tremont, to join the Insiders. Uh, so people uh, whose work you uh, may love and who you may have heard on the podcast will also be interacting in that community too, which is quite exciting. Oh, that's good. Yes, nice. I might like even it. send you an invite, Richard. Possibly. Well, I might not. I might not join in. Well, all right. Well, let's I see. I might not want your. I might not want your invite. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah. But until I send out that invite, and uh, until next time, that is the end of this week's Jerry Anderson News. That was the news. That was the news. Oh, oh. how I've missed your I dulcet know. tones. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Now, Ash got in touch with us at podcast.jerryanderson.co.uk. Would you like to hear what he said? Uh, mm, oh, go on then. I thought you might. Since Richard asked for emails from people who don't like Thunderbirds, Uh-oh. says Ash... I thought it was my duty to send this email in, and I did ask, so that's fair enough. I preface this by reminding all that this is entirely my own opinion. Yep, fair enough. He says, In my younger years, when introduced to Thunderbirds, I loved every moment of their exciting rescues. However, when I recently went and revisited Thunderbirds, I found that the show was not as good as I remembered. Mm. I noticed that the stories were mainly built upon the vehicles rather than character development and story intricacies. But despite my mild dislike for Thunderbirds, I still greatly appreciate Jerry's other shows, ranking UFO, Stingray, Captain Scarlet and The Secret Service as my top four. Thanks from Ash. Interesting. Well, the Secret yeah. Service made it in there. That's right. Yes, how interesting. Yes, well, uh, fair enough, Ash. I did indeed ask a few weeks ago, is there anyone out there who doesn't like Thunderbirds? And there we have it. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, perhaps that sort of um, reflects on on the change in storytelling on TV these days, that he really missed uh, character development uh, and uh, more intricate stories hmm. when he re-watched it as an adult, because that's what we've become so used to these days, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Things have moved on a lot and evolved and that's natural yeah. and fine and if you yeah. still love the more old-fashioned stuff the more nostalgic stuff then quite right too and if you yes. don't then that's quite right also <laughs> of course yes. exactly uh, mark wilson got in touch to say hello and happy new year to the three of you i just thought uh, for your youtube version of the podcast i listened to another popular and joint favorite podcast of mine the james bond radio give it a listen it's brilliant and the hosts are knowledgeable funny and very interactive with the listeners Oh, right. That's like competition. Yeah. And whilst they do a traditional Apple podcast version of their show, I've recently been watching their weekly podcasts on YouTube. They record a live visual version of their show over Skype and Zoom, whatever it is, and upload it to YouTube. And I much prefer this version as I get to see the hosts and it's much more enjoyable to listen and watch. Uh, he says, would you ever consider doing this with the Jerry Anderson podcast? As I think it would be great for us to see you guys during the podcast like you do with the old Fab Lives and so on. Just a thought. Looking forward to see what uh, 2021 has in store for the show. And that's from Mark Wilson. Uh, I mean, that's a thought, but it'd be quite difficult, wouldn't it? Because I suppose we have so many segments and <laughs> edits and bits to cut in and yeah there's you more edits than you think and, and what would we yeah. do for the interview and what would we do for the randomizer we'd have to get chris to record his right yeah it might be a bit yeah. complicated i mean yeah. you know, one day uh, you know when we're allowed to see each other in the same airspace again you know we did talk about recording in the same location we did it used to do yeah. it 
occasionally when you'd uh, come over for a fab yeah, line. Exactly. But, um, I'm sure that'll happen again. Exactly. Yeah, maybe yeah. once in a while is the answer, I guess, there. Uh, that's right. And the final email, uh, Martin Laybourne. Hi, Richard and Jamie. I've just seen a tribute to designer Pierre Cardin on the BBC News today. Yes, he died, I think, over Christmas and New Year. He says this included his future fashion concepts, which certainly appear to be the influence for Captain Scarlet and UFO costume designs. And he sent us a link. What are your thoughts, he says? Well, yes, we covered this earlier, didn't we? A few podcasts ago, I think. Uh, I think it was Eric who pointed out the uh, Pierre Cardin and Captain Scarlet uniform sort of uh, yeah. uh, inspirations. Uh, so, yes, quite well known that. Thanks for that, Martin. Uh, do get in touch with us, podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk. We always look forward to your emails and I enjoy reading them out and I'm sure I'll do that next week too. Ah, oh, I enjoy yeah. you enjoying reading them out. Oh, good, because I enjoy you enjoying me enjoying reading them out. Gosh, and so it could continue. But thankfully, it won't. Oh. <laughs> because we've got to play out some more of our archive feature that we started a couple of weeks ago okay yes all right now if you remember this uh is from 1981 so it's pretty old in fact Mm -hmm. is it 40 40 years old i can't believe that that seems so weird i I know obviously you know (sighs) maths and numbers means that is the case but yes for some reason 1981 doesn't feel like it should be 40 years ago but it is Mm mm-hmm so there we go this 40 year old archive recording uh, which does, does suffer from some archive distortions and stuff but you're, I'm sure you'll forgive it because it also in, uh, includes a range of fantastic interviewees including Dad and uh, I think Paddy Seal and uh, John and Wanda Brown and Martin Bauer and a couple of others too uh, I'm sorry I've just uh, had a brain fart and forgotten uh, who's on the recording Fair enough. but uh, mm. you're about to hear, hear more so here you go, the archive recording from the Anderfan Minicon in 1981. Here we go. In the sound effects, there's obviously some sounds which reappear throughout the series time and time again. Uh, Commander Share, Shaw's hollow chair noise, I think, is, uh, is one that reappears at regular time. Did you have a large bank of sound effects? Who made the decision what would sound like what? Uh, well, yes, we had um, a library of effects that were repeated so that we used the same effects, the same sound for, for the same thing each time. Um, a variety of electric motors, basically, and electric relay switches. And it was really a point of putting them against the picture to see whether they looked correct or not. Uh, some noises just sounded too heavy. Um, the, these sort of uh, noises, one in particular that you're talking about, is almost like a vacuum cleaner sound. And uh, even by varying the pitch of the, um, the track, it'll either bring it up or down. Uh, and we may maybe found the right sound, but it just sounded a little bit too heavy. By pitching it up, it then got it into the correct sound. I think Basically, Jerry was the only one who made any decisions once we got into the theatre whether a sound was correct or not. Um, we at that time possibly had got too close to it and had accepted it and, and thought that it worked and it sometimes needed an independent person to come along and say, well, I don't really think that works. I think that's fair enough. Yes, again, I'd like to uh, add, add a few points here. What I find interesting um, today watching the films in chronological order is uh, how we have in fact moved ahead technically you know in real life over this very short space of time and 
when we produced Supercar, uh, it was, I suppose, you know, in the very early days of the jet engine. Uh, t today, uh, I mean, there's so many aircraft and machines that are driven with jet engines that probably, you know, one could obtain a recording uh, or recordings with an uh, infinite number of variations. But in those days, we had to create uh, what was then a very weird and, and uh, science fiction sound. I mean, you know, we've been listening to Supercar, and it really doesn't sound very odd today, but at the time it was uh, something quite new and quite normal. On the subject of George Howell's, what's happening in Can we just take this into? I'd, I'd like Martin Bauer to contribute to this one. Um, first of all, dealing with the point about uh, Fireball XL5, as the film was running, I was saying to my wife Mary that uh, at that time there was a great deal of speculation as to how man would go into space. And of course, there was the obvious uh, vertical takeoff of a rocket. But I heard, and it probably uh, was completely untrue, but I remember at the time I heard that the uh, Russians were developing um, a rocket sledge so that the rocket would build up um, tremendous power uh, on, on a track and uh, using um, a fuel which would be carried in a bogey underneath and then it, it would be launched having you know gained a certain amount of speed and uh, dropping the, the, the bogey behind and so uh, we use that principle well obviously we know today that that was not the way it was to be done um, generally speaking uh, the designs were based on uh, the state of the art at the time and our own guesswork as to how it would develop. But I'd like to hand this over to Martin because Martin created, um, I suppose, hundreds of models for Space 1999 and uh, he was constantly faced with producing models that... Uh, would look realistic. Yes, I found the one of the main problems actually was to produce a design which somebody didn't say looked like something else. Um, very often, um, I would think I'd got an original idea, although as Jerry says, it was quite often drawn from something in reality and then carried one stage further. But I remember many times turning up at the studios with a model for the first time when nobody's seen it and somebody would say to me, oh, that looks just like so-and-so, and I thought, oh, no, and every, you know, I've tried to be original, and that in fact is one of the hardest things to do, is to be original. But I used to draw inspiration from the oddest things. Um, I, spaceships in Space 1999 sometimes were governed, there's one particular one whereby the shape of it is simply the fact that I walked into a shop one day and there was a Hoover vacuum cleaner sitting there, and beside it was a range of spares which Hoover produced, and there was this amazing shaped container. And I thought that will make a spaceship, and in fact that turned out as part of a spaceship in Space 1999. It was not um, completely just the vacuum cleaner, but it was worked on. But it had such a beautiful shape, 
that that shape was actually developed and that was the most one of the most way out designs that came. It was simply the shape of a vacuum cleaner suggested it to me and I took it one stage further. But also, having said that, I try to make them um, fairly functional so that if, if somebody was to ask me, well, what does that part do? I'm able to answer them and say, well, that's the vertical takeoff jet or whatever. But it is very difficult now to come up with something which is totally original, which somebody doesn't say, oh, that looks like so-and-so. See, uh, I mean, it's an interesting question because when I was watching Supercar, I mean, Supercar, okay, that was long before the Harrier. Job Jeff. And so one says, you know, in one way, uh, it, we, we were looking into the future, but then I equally I noticed that we didn't have any downward thrusters on Supercar. So how it I got off the ground, I, I don't know. <laughs> 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 what inspired the question originally was looking at things like, say, the ski jump, they used to see how in the swimming and thunder what happened. And then it's a lot easier for you to make a model that does it than somebody to make an airplane that does it. So you could sort of come up with that far ahead of anybody else. Yes, I, I regret that I wasn't quick enough to think about the <laughs> ski jump and claim that for my own. Um, yes, uh, it is of course an advantage and uh, we were able to make things happen with models whereas uh, people working on the real thing were lagging some 20 years behind. And I. Uh, a good example was when uh, Concorde was being made. Uh, I was invited to the factory, and in fact, they asked us. They were making a documentary, and they could, uh, of course, film everything. But the one thing they couldn't do was to film Concorde taking off and flying because the thing was all in pieces and hadn't been assembled yet. And so, in fact, we got the job of building Concorde and we actually flew Concorde at the Slough Studios um, I think about five years before it was rolled out. Did you ever have a, uh, a specific market for your programs? Did you know who you were trying to appeal to when you started to make Ah. <laughs> I think as possible. <laughs> well, I think there are, I think there are, there are really um, I suppose three answers. Uh, one, you have to satisfy the people who are putting up the money. And that's rather sad because the people who put up the money are not always the best people to judge uh, what is good entertainment. But nevertheless, you know, that's answer number one. One has to take these people into account. Um, and I don't mean that to be an unkind remark because, in fact, they are risking their money and their reputation. So they are entitled to express their view. Um, secondly, the American market, in terms of revenue on any cinema or television film, represents about 60% of the entire world. So if, if you take all the money that, that, that the series will take throughout the world, 60% comes from the States. So clearly one has to make it acceptable for America, and I think that is pretty obvious from the number of Americans and American subjects that we, 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 we chose. And then finally, uh, going back many years when I was a cutting room assistant, I 
worked with uh, an old-time movie director, uh, Lewis Milestone, who uh, was the man who directed All Quiet on the Western Front. And I remember on one occasion we were working late at night in the cutting room and I asked him whether he wanted something done this way or that way, you know, and I explained that there are two ways at that particular time, like Roy Lefbury, I was a, a sound editor, and I asked him uh, which way he, he would like it done, and, and he said, uh, and I've never forgotten this, he said that, um, he said, if you always remember this, it's absolutely impossible to please everybody in this world, so when you're making a picture, you know, at least make sure you please yourself. And uh, I think somewhere between those three answers is how we operated, but there was a strong element of, as far as I was concerned, of pleasing myself, because how can you guess what other people want to watch at any particular time? I think I, I, I was doing the thing I wanted to do, and I think to be fair, so were all the other people at the studio, people who were creating the models and, and the um, puppets and, 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 and bringing the thing to the screen. I think everybody was doing their own thing. And I believe that lack of restriction was mainly the main reason for the success the show's had. Um, I've heard that Thunderbirds was originally going to be a half-hour show instead of an hour show. Were anyone's actually filmed this half-hour? So were they expanding to the hour or just... Uh, um, you were there, yes. Uh, I think Paddy will probably just add to this, but, but the, the short story is that, uh, that, that Thunderbird started as a half an hour show, and um, I'm pretty sure I'm right when I say, uh, perhaps I'll be helped out in a moment on this question, but as far as I remember, we filmed nine episodes as half hours, and probably therefore two episodes had been completed and dubbed and were finished and probably some were in the cutting rooms and some were on the floor and probably a couple of episodes were being finalized in terms of scripting when uh, Lou Grade, now Lord Grade, um, said great news, it was almost like one of these six stories and they don't want the good news or the bad news. I mean, the good news is we've sold this, the series to the States and the bad news is it's uh, been sold as an hour and they are making them as a half an hour. And so we literally had to uh, continue shooting and write the very next script to go on the floor as an hour. And then we changed over to one hour pictures and then we had to go back and extend the first nine stories and shoot additional material and pull them all apart and reassemble them and make them into one hours. And if you don't think that's a sick story, I can cap it by telling you that when we finished all 32 one hours, I got a telephone call from Lou Gray to say, terrific, terrific, terrific. And I've now sold them somewhere else as half hour shows. <laughs> And we had to take all 32 episodes and cut them in half, producing 32 two-part half-hour shows. I don't know whether, does anybody remember that situation? I, 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 I did, because on the floor, we wouldn't remember that, but I remember 
having, I mean, I think on, that, on the alligators, for instance, I didn't see the first half, it was a long time since that, but was it a separate story and had been merged into one? I can't remember. No, I think that but was shot as anyway, well. Anyway, the reason I was on special effects at that period was because of this. What had happened, we normally work two crews, um, A and B, on puppets. And um, I think it was A and B type of puppet as well, haven't we? Have we got, have we got a double set of characters? Yeah, yeah two sets yeah. of characters. And we yeah. always knew which one was our <coughs> Virgil and which one was next door. Their Virgil, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, they, although theoretically they were the same, they were two separate crews. And then in addition to that, we had two special effects crews doing the special effects. But what happened was we had to get... We all had to work overtime, work like mad to get these up from a half-hour show to an hour show. So we worked day and night for about two weeks, two or three, or months probably, a period of time, shooting extra material, and people were writing the scripts, and we were marrying up together to get the hour-long episode. And that's why I ended up not only having shot the part of this in the studio apartment of puppets, but doing the special effects with the alligators and falling into tank with them and all the terrible things that happened. If, if, if I could just perhaps break in here to tell you a story which I think you might appreciate since you've just seen this film. Uh, Derek Meddings was the special effects director and uh, I wasn't around because I was in my Betty buys but they were shooting right the way through the night and it was I think about two o'clock in the morning and uh, Derek Meddings was standing in the water tank which are probably a couple of feet deep and he had a 12-foot alligator on a lead, <laughs> which he was holding, it was like, like a stick with, the, with this leather around its neck. And uh, the cameraman, who may have been Paddy, I'm sure he'll tell me in a moment, but the cameraman was setting up on the water because the idea was that the alligator had to lurch out of the water and, and go back in again. And of course it's very difficult, isn't it, to set up on a piece of water. I mean, you know, one bit of water looks like another bit of water. So, you know, where, where is the alligator going to come up? So Derek would sort of bring the alligator up and they would set up on it. And then he would take it down and then the camera would wind up to high speed, which took a few seconds. And then it would be action and Derek would bring the alligator up and it would come up out of picture. And uh, I don't know, they went take after take after take and always the, the alligator came up out of picture or top of picture or bottom of picture, but never in the center of picture. And finally Derek said, look, uh, it's no good. We'll have to make the shot wider, you know, a bigger area of water because too critical the way we're doing it. So they put another lens on and that meant, of course, that they had a lighter, bigger area of water. So there was a delay. And Derek stood there for about 20 minutes holding his alligator Finally, it was uh, camera ready, and okay, turn over, and the camera rolled up to 120 frames per second, and then they shouted out speed, action, Derek, and there was no alligator. <laughs> <laughs> and he had been standing in that tank with his alligator swimming around loose for about 20 minutes. Now, if you, and I'm sure you've all read children's comics, last when you were children, and you know, this lovely phrase, with one mighty leap. <laughs> now, getting into this tank, albeit that it was not that high, but, you know, with Wade, as it was lots of... and, you know, big deal and all the rest of it. But I'm told that when Derek realised 
that the alligator was no longer with him. It was a question of with one mighty leap, and he was out. Just like I hear both of them. Walks under water. Were you there? Yes, it was literally ran across the top of the water. It's like a duct tape. Uh, yes, well, with this I'm going to ask Bert if we can see, if we can work this one out be between us. We hadn't seen a, 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 one of Four Feather Falls, but it was, uh, it was uh, the first program that I sort of made as an independent. And uh, the, the guns were, were evolved, I believe, by, by just pulling wires. And they were strings, hit. they're on pivots here. Just pull down, fired. Yeah. Can you remember um, the gun flashes? Did we used to paint them on the negative? On, was it on Four Feather Falls? No, no, they, you had charges in the guns somehow then, until they um, fired. It was automatic. On a bit from there. No, you didn't paint any gun flashes on there. <laughs> well, then it must have been on. Uh, <coughs> uh, oh, wait a minute. No, I know what it was. It was on the pilot of Four Feather Falls that we did that. Um, if, if I can just exp explain my ramblings. Uh, when we made the pilot of Four Feather Falls, we had to make this uh, gimmick work of the guns revolving. Okay, fine. As Bert says, that was done by wire um, but we then also had to make the guns fire now in fact i hadn't remembered that we used charges to make the guns fire we also we obviously used small charges and detonated them but on the pilot film uh, where we were very very short of money and we couldn't uh, afford these sort of luxuries uh, we in fact um, when we finished the picture we marked where the guns were to fire, and we called the negative back from the laboratory, and we actually painted the gun flashes on with black ink on, on the tips of the guns over about four frames, so that uh, we get the white flash when, when the thing was printed. And like a lot of things, um, as uh, both Bert and Roy know only too well, like a lot of things in movie, movie making, the pictures look so much better when they had the sound on. And, uh, you know, it's surprising that you, you just get a little white blob on the end of a gun. It doesn't look very, very good, but if you put the sound of a Winchester on it, um, suddenly it looks like the real thing. Uh, we, I, I was asked this question on uh, Radio Oxford the other day and got in a terrible mess over this one. Um, we had two puppet units working simultaneously, and as Wanda has already explained, we, we therefore had two of each character, two puppet, two, two, uh, two of each character. And we also had two special effects units, so that gives us four units, and those four units shot for 
two weeks. So in other words, it is eight unit weeks per, per hour. Have I got that right? <laughs> Whichever way it was always too long. <laughs> That's from the office to us. <laughs> yes, it was ah, about a fortnight. Things haven't changed much. <laughs> day, it was about a fortnight to do the puppets. Puppets, yeah. Stuff, probably with a couple of extra days yes. in overtime. Depending which director. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then about the same for the special effects, I would imagine. Yeah. And I then must, into must, the cutting I room. The other, so I, I mean, suppose I, it must have been about a month, really. Must yeah, have been a month, together. basically. A month to complete one film. But you'll notice, you'll notice a cameraman saying, depending on the director. Oh, yeah. The, the directors say, depending on the cameraman. <laughs> I mean, can, you do it, can you do it in the time, I'd say to a director? They say, well, depends how fast the cameraman is. <laughs> and I say to the cameraman, how fast it is as well. I mean, it depends who the director is. No, but I mean, when you had somebody like Alan Patillo, who was, I mean, he was a... He was always trying things, he was stretching the limits of doing things with puppets, you know, making them move in a certain way, stand in a certain way, whereas other directors would just carry straight on and just do the job and get it over with. Alan was always trying to innovate things, wasn't he? You know, and he could, he'd use every day that he was allotted, I think. Yes, well, when Dave Elliott had been to see the Ibcrest file and the next puppet film that we had to shoot, had to be like the Ibcrest fire. I mean, everything, <laughs> everything through lampshades, through clocks, through parking meters. Oh, God. It was, it was a good film, though. Time when it fell, how much work was used for the explosion, how much time did it take to make that fall? Well, as Jerry said, I think you must be trying to catch me out as well because I haven't a clue. I didn't work on it, and um, I'm afraid I'm just not qualified to answer that one at all. I, I did not work on Thunderbird 6 at all. In fact, I was about 15 years old when it was done. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I, I, think, I think I can only answer it broadly. Uh, it was uh, a model that I would presume, you know, looking back, was made in-house because we had our own model workshops. We used to hand work out. And I, I, I couldn't say how long it would have taken to make it. Obviously, these things depend on how many people are, are working. Well, I've been following your life. I've been doing I've been with you for the last, since I was four years old. And I know I've personally everything on Jerry Anderson. All the main stage, everything. That's why I tried to lay it down. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. Why are you? I've been carrying out some fans since age four years old. And I know I've been focusing in on all the model side, the fet size, the chamber work, and everything. How you've done the models, everything. So I've been reading all your books and writing and that, and looking at your work and everything. Well, I, I appreciate that. And <clears throat> I think we'll have to watch my step. I can see that. <laughs> Somebody at the back, I think. How many heads did you have to one puppet? Uh, well, for, for this was just solely for main characters. Uh, because we had the two stages, you would have, for the main face, uh, two heads. That was for stage one and stage two. And then, if they were the top main characters, you would have a, a serious head, a smiling head, 
and an angry head. And a frown, yes. Uh, but then sometimes uh, other things would call for special, uh, and they would have been done as and when necessary. So you can say each of your main uh, characters on films like Thunderbird, anyway, uh, had four heads to each puppet. I think Mr. Anderson, I'm sorry to interrupt, I'm going to have to put on a serious head now. Um, we're already half an hour over schedule. I appreciate we're a little late starting. I'm probably the most unpopular person here now, but we're going to have to bring this session to an end, otherwise the whole conference is going to run well, well over time. I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you would like me to thank on your behalf Jerry Anderson and his team, not only for coming along this afternoon and being so interesting, but also for all the many, many hours of splendid entertainment you've given us. Thank you all very much indeed. Isn't it lovely that we can hear those uh, voices from the yeah relatively distant past now absolutely uh, yeah it is it's so nice isn't it it's rather like uh yeah, same i feel as sort of the, the old sort of gramophone records isn't it when you, when you hear the uh <laughs> the, the crackle and the slight you know yeah there's there's a nostalgia in the sort of archive distortion that you get yeah. as well as hearing the old voices so yes yeah. uh, again mark thank you for supplying that to us really appreciate yeah, you lovely. allowing us to play it out it's brilliant if you happen to have anything similar that you would like to share with us in terms of uh, old recordings, archive bits and pieces, to let us know, podcast at jerryanson.co.uk. Oh, but well, I've got some of me oh, singing um, uh, Like a Prayer by Madonna. Have you? Yeah, I is that the sort of thing you might meant? have a MCPS oh. issue with oh, that. Right, okay. So it's a great shame. But oh. if you've got anything else that isn't um, that, then uh, uh, then do email us. Uh, I mean, I've probably got some old voice tapes of me just trying out different accents and things, if that's of interest. What anyone? a great idea. Anyway, oh. next week we've mm-hmm. got a very special guest yep. from Space 1999. Oh, yes. Series 2, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. It's Maya herself. Oh, Catherine Shell. That's brilliant news. Yeah, so uh, I chatted to Catherine at the end of last year. Uh, she spoke to me from France with a yeah. slightly dodgy connection, but there you go. It's a voice from the past, but recorded in the very close to present. So Catherine had a, fa- a fascinating start to her acting career, all sorts of stuff to say about uh, Space 1999 and Later Life too. So part one of that will be here next week. Great. Oh, that'll be so nice. I, I agree. Yeah, well, exciting. And you know what's happening. She was very nice. And she uh, she said I was a, a, a very uh, nice and polite young man. That's how bad the line was. Crikey, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. She must have barely heard you. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that must be why that happened. Uh, anyway. <laughs> nice. So Catherine and many more interviews coming throughout this year. Uh, yeah. I, for one, can't wait. No, absolutely not. Uh, worth staying tuned for, I'd say. Now, if you're on Facebook... Don't forget, you can, of course, join our Podstrons Facebook group. Answer a few questions and uh, we'll let you in. As long as you're nice to everyone, you can join in the fun. For example, Paul Hyder has posted some uh, Jerry Anderson shows that didn't quite make it. Uh, for example, Fireball XL Spreadsheet, Torchy the Battery Hen, Stringray, Space 1899. Although, Jake, you and I have uh, exchanged a few messages about what a good idea that would be. As Absolutely. Steampunk Space 1999, yep. Three Feather Falls, and Dick Spaniard, which I like the sound of. Uh, <laughs> Also, do you remember Dean Harrison uh, sent us his um, periodic table? I do. Where all the elements were named after various Anderson-inspired names, TV series and so on. Well, people have been enjoying Dean's uh, periodic table very much. My favourites, for example, were Orangen, of course, Jamium and Euphonium. It's quite nice. <laughs> Euphonium. Sounds like an instrument. And oh, that's Euphonium. But, yes. But, Jamie, how well do you know your periodic table? 
Let's Not, find out oh, with a very special no. chemical and elemental quickfire five. <sighs> okay, Jamie, I'm going to give you five elements from the Jerry Anderson periodic table. Can you guess what they are? What? Zn. Ordinarily zinc, but what is Zn in the Jerry Anderson periodic table? <laughs> I was supposed to have memorised this from seeing it, like, twice. Come on! Uh, Zodiacan? Oh, oh, it's Zunium. Oh, of course, yeah. SR, as of course I'm sure you you know, is uh, usually strontium, becomes, in the Jerry Anderson periodic table... (laughs) Um... (laughs) I I have no idea. Stingranium. Oh. Of course it does. AC, which is normally actinium, becomes... Um... He's been mentioned already in this podcast. Uh, Think Space 1999. Um, Think everyone's favourite pilot. Oh, Alan Carterium. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, ES is usually Einsteinium, but becomes, and he's been mentioned too. Um. <laughs> Think John Colshaw. Think Tech Talk. ES. Oh, Ed Strakerum. Ed Strakium, quite Strachium. right. And finally, PO. Normally polonium becomes... <laughs> Come on, these are these are rather challenging. Um, they are. Podlium. Oh, that's very close. Popkissium. Oh, come on. <laughs> very good. And that's this week's very special Elemental Quickfire 5. Please never do that to me again. <laughs> that's quite clever, though, isn't it? Yeah, lots of people have been enjoying that. It's a rather nice little thing. Well, I, I had been pretty... enjoying it until you sprung yes. that Quickfire 5 with me. And, I know. And Sorry now that's ground to a complete halt. Uh, Morty Vicker, when he read it, uh, says now we want a translation of the song from uh, Tom Lehrer. Do you know the elements? There's antimony and arsenic and aluminium and selenium and all that. Yes. Google it. I know but the We one. should have the Jerry Anderson version, of course, shouldn't we? Well, if somebody wants to do that, then um, more fool you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, all for now, but do pop over to our Facebook group and join in the fun. They have weekly watch-alongs and quiz nights and they just hang out together, which at the moment is a fantastic thing to do. Absolutely. Well, it always is, but uh, especially when we yeah. can't do it in person. Yeah. Uh, now, I need a break to recover from that quick fire, Fivium. Rightio. So, uh, I think we should hand over to uh, Chris Dalium for yes. the uh, randomizerium. Yes. <laughs> ad nauseum. <laughs> ad nauseum before I go completely crazy. Crazy. <laughs> okay, Chris, over to you. <laughs> oh, oh, hello, hello everyone. Um, Marina and I, this is Marina, um, we, uh, we have been celebrating, actually, because we, someone sent us some champagne, which went down very nicely. Uh, it was, um, it was, who, who was it who sent that? It was, oh, yeah, it was sent by a wishweller. Uh, Oh, a well-wisher. It's an anonymous well-wisher. Um, uh, it's not alcoholic champagne, you know. Anyway, we're going to do the randomizer. Um, and I have a randomizer printout. Oh, oh, I dropped it. I dropped the randomizer. Oh, it's by this guy's feet. I just get the randomizer printout under your feet. I'm sorry. Oh, you pick it up for me. Oh, oh well, that, that, you, you are, you are my best friend. Oh, you know, you, you're still my best friend, Marina, but this guy, oh, he's my new best friend. Oh, and, and you say, you say what it is we're watching today? Time to kill. Oh, okay. Well, then it's time 
the space precinct. And it's not an alcoholic champagne. It's really something. <laughs> oh. So welcome back to the, it's actually the very first randomizer I'm recording in 2021. This is Time to Kill, uh, a very popular episode of there, um, perhaps a not so popular show, Space Precinct. And anyway, we are opening with... Personnel. My wife says you're looking... Well, two notable things. One, this chap, um... Sir? Tamsin, played by Nigel Gregory, was in not one but two episodes of UFO. He was in The Psycho Bombs, and he was in The Sound of Silence. The other notable thing is that his boss, Draco, earned himself a Space Precinct Pog, which is a very notable achievement of great importance to all of us. You weren't my wife's cousin. Written by Hans Beimler. Oh, now Hans Beimler, of um, many American shows, including uh, some of the 1990s Star Trek shows. <laughs> Don't worry, they're totally indistinguishable from government issues. Tamsin is uh, introducing this um, young chap. What's his, what's his relationship with this guy? Is his nephew or something? I can't remember. I waffled over it. They're running a counterfeiting operation. And the uh, young chap, Ross, he's, uh, he's not too keen. Without great risks. when he sees the uh, money being produced from vats of acid. Well, this is illegal. I don't know too much about the uh, the counterfeiting business, uh, at least not these days, but uh, I'm not sure to what extent acid is, is actually genuinely involved in the process. It's a genuine opportunity I'm offering you here. It's certainly very uh, very lucrative. They're making uh, Sorry. quite a lot of it. Suit yourself. Police! You're under arrest! Nobody move! Nobody That's it. Drop. All our heroes are here. Brogan and Haldane. Orin and Romek. Castle and Took. We heard everything. We need to get a statement from you and then you're free to go, okay? Yes, Hans Beimler, writer of um, many good, really good Star Trek episodes in particular. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. From a story by Mark Scott Zacree, who was also another Space Precinct writer, um, Deep Space Nine's Far Beyond the Stars, which is uh, just one of the greatest pieces of, of Star Trek ever made, in my opinion, and uh, quite a lot of other people's. Anyway. Like an earthquake. Brilliant, Haldane. I'm surprised you haven't made detective already. Huh, I do know how to make the earth move. The warehouse has been rocked by a little bit of a tremor. Brogan hasn't noticed this chap on the... Uh... Oh, here it comes. Yes. And Orin is down straight away. Luckily, there were some uh, empty cardboard boxes to cushion his fall. Tamsin and Draco have gotten away. Which basically leaves the warehouse with only the cops, um, Ross, and... We weren't introduced. This, this chap who's come to see them, he's a... He looks like a, a bit of a, a cybernetic organism, almost a cyborg, if you will. And this sequence is just so phenomenally directed. Um, I can't remember who the director on this one is, and that's uh, that's annoying me actually because they do such great work here. There's so many shots in quick succession. This is very unusual for Space Precinct. That small can't be. Tell him that. And yet, I get the feeling this was kind of what they were hoping would be the norm. This just frantic pace of the editing here. Anyway, Jane's making a break for it. Took's covering her. Jane's clear signals to Took, who gets up in slow motion because, of course, 
a cyborg shoots her across the spine. Well, we're two officers down now. Everybody, on my signal, fire! I also like these um, shots of one of the members of the counterfeiting gang, I think the only one who stuck around, um, helping himself to a bit of money, you know, just in case. But the cop's weapons are having no effect on the cyborg. He's, uh... Flank him! He's heading upstairs. Where's he going? And Ross has taken this moment to, uh, find better cover. Bad idea. Yeah! Cyborg shoots Brogan, and in the recoil, Brogan shoots Ross, who lands in the vat of acid. Well, Cyborg's not sticking around to help uh, mop this one up. He's gone. And this is such a gruesome thing to do to the to the Ross character. The makeup is, is oh. Even though we don't see the face, it's covered by his hands. But I would assume. Down. We need emergency medical assistance. Oh. Although the editing, uh, the editing lets the end of that scene down. Brogan has covered Ross's face with his jacket, and then at the very end, we cut back to Ross. The jacket's off. But hey ho. Her spine was shattered. And so that was a fairly intense little scene. that would paralyze a human. Fortunately, she's a tarn. And her spinal cord will regenerate. Yeah, Took's gonna be okay. Well, that is if you can hold still and give yourself a chance to heal. Well, it's times like this. Oh. Helping yourself to some water. Telekinesis really comes in handy. And that will be a plot point later. No word on Orin if he's uh, recovered from his um, stumble into some cardboard boxes. Possibly a severe paper cut or two. Relax. I'll be back on the streets before you know it. Tarns are built tough, you know. Which is why anything bad that's going to happen always happens to this Tarn. It's just somebody who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's an understatement. Here's another guest actress who's been saddled with a, a, an American voice dubbed over her performance. He's stable for now, but frankly, I'm not optimistic. Well, I'm responsible for him being here. Yep, Ross is on life support. Even in... What little you can see of his face there. Oh, that makeup still looks very gruesome. Look, Captain, please don't patronize me. I screwed up. I'll tell you when you screwed up. I love that. Infected Drake on a hatch. I decide who's made a mistake or not. Spring him loose. My concern is not to find fault. My concern is to determine your next move. We look for Draco. We find him, we find the cyborg. Well, that's if the cyborg was under Draco's control. Also, there's a lot of talk about Draco, the, the, the head of the counterfeiting operation, but you barely actually have a chance to register who that is in the, the warehouse scene. You spend more time with Tamsin to the extent you don't really acknowledge that Draco is the... Uh, have forensics running The chap with the... You managed to blast loose. I don't know what he... He had some, some sort of magnifying glass or something, attachment to his uh, head. We had the streets. Somebody's got to know something about that thing. Yeah, that's right. Assassins don't just materialize out of thin air, huh? Ah. Another comment that um, may come into play later on in the episode. Disappointed in you, Zipload. No reason, Brogan. I'm being straight with you. And is this our first appearance of Zipload? I know he's been on the randomizer before, but is this his first appearance in... Uh in series order? Mm, possibly. This is a nice little montage as well of um, Brogan and Haldane checking in with their regular informants. 
please, you know I can't take I know Zipload was the only one to return after this, but uh, it does make the world feel a bit more... That's what we want to know. ...more real. I would if I knew anything, but I swear I haven't heard a damn thing. So back at the hospital, which uh, is not, I don't, I don't think it's the hospital where we later see Sally working. I like this little model of um, a sort of road sweeper, street cleaner thing out the front. Anyway, the uh, receptionist is uh, just going to pop out for a moment. At the moment, our cyborg friend pops in to see Took. He hasn't brought any flowers or uh, or anything. Oh no, he's not here to see Took. He's here to see Ross, but Took has seen him. And as we saw earlier, using her telekinesis makes the beepy thing go all beepier. Code red. Officer needs a And the cyborg has heard it. <laughs> That's a fairly horrible thing to do to Took. Again. Yep, she's dead. And what's this? Oh, we've got a vial of green stuff to inject into Ross. I love the look of this cyborg, by the way. It's so... Well, from the top, the, the, the waist up, it's brilliant. And then from the bottom down, it's just got a pair of tan jeans. And I can never decide if that took of that that shot of took dead in bed is is kind of a bit too graphic, or if it's um, if her pose is, is rather comical. I'm torn between the two. Anyway, here's one of my favourite Haldane moments. Took's dead. I keep saying it to myself over and over and over again. Because part of me just won't accept it. And one of the first times I think Rob Youngblood, uh, Rob Youngblood gets a chance to play something other than the, you know, the cocky would-be ladies' man that the Haldane is on paper. Yeah, Jane, I... You get here the, the, the sense that he really does care. If there's anything I can do to help, I mean, an ear, shoulder. <laughs> I know I'm not exactly your first choice, but... Well, the offer's there. Brought it to work. Thanks. Why would that thing want to kill Took? Some kind of vendetta against cops? Uh, maybe. If Draco's pulling the cyborg strings, could be that Draco's holding a grudge against us for busting the operation, huh? Captain, forensics have run every test they've got on this hunk of armor. Oh, Aaron's back with us. Inconclusive. It's some sort of bizarre alloy that defies description. They can't tell what it's made of. Don't they have any idea? Well, they're talking of sending it to the Hawking Laboratories on Earth, but that ain't cheap. I'll worry about that. Get it to them. Rogan, your friend Ziploads on Com 6. I'm taking the captain's office. Yay, Zipload. Why don't you use my office, Rogan? <laughs> Zipload, what do you got? You find the cyborg? Uh, no, but I, uh, I might know where Draco's hold up. Some very nice uh, reaction eye movements there from Zipload. At the Tirana Hotel. And he also scratches his head in the same way that uh, Orin often does. Well, it looks like Draco's not home. Anyway, it's off to find Mr. Draco. That well-defined character that um, you don't actually know what he looks like unless you've really seen this a couple of times. That's going to have to wait, partner. Draco just got home. And there he goes. Oh, fantastic stuff. I, I love the shock of that. Cyborg in that harbor. Ah, uh, yep. The cyborg was rented the standard green hopper. All units, all units, cyborg spotted. Grid reference. 
blown up the penthouse suite just by using his his handgun. Let's nail this cop killer. This is another fantastic model sequence here as well of uh, Brogan and Haldane chasing the cyborg's hopper through this. I don't even know what it is. It looks just as a random assortment of scaffolding and bits. But it gives the cyborg time to uh, sneak up behind them. Yeah, he's on the starboard bow. There's cyborg on the starboard bow. Stop. Oh, no. Uh, they're going down. We're losing it. Eject, Haldane. Eject. Malfunction, my ejector won't work. Oh dear. I'll try and set it. And as much as I like this sequence, there are some close-up shots of the cruiser. It looks a bit toy-like. Punch out, Brogan! Not without you! End of discussion! Oh, Brogan's gone. Good landing, partner. So Haldane is gonna try and land this thing, which is not a good idea considering that um, judging by the model shots, there's like no room on the ground at all in Demeter City. It's just skyscrapers everywhere. I love the way we just we stay with Brogan on his little ejector seat chair, watching the cruiser spinning into the distance. And these these are live action shots of of Rob Youngblood as well, with the model city spinning around him. This looks very realistic, and then it all goes very quiet until. Well, that's uh, two nil to the cyborg. Tired? It's not sleepy, it's more like... Um... Numb. That's it. This is another really good scene. I think this time for, for Ted Shackelford. You keep asking yourself why. And you know damn well there's no reason. I also like there's an extra coming up here who's uh, drinking in the background. Yeah, here he goes, gets up from his table, walks past Brogan. We'd end up together. Just gives him a gentle pat on the shoulder. No. Ted Shackelford, I don't think he even acknowledges it. What do you got, Sergeant? Maybe a lead on Tamsin, Draco's second in command. Someone called in an anonymous tip, an address where Tamsin's hiding out. I'll take it. We'll take it. Okay, so both of you take it. What's the problem? I mean, have both your partners been killed recently? I mean, what's up with you two? If you want to take a few days, give yourself some... I don't understand Fredo's reaction there. He, he seems to be operating in a slightly different uh, reality to everyone else there. Haldane's killer. Unfortunately for him, he's going to be brought into this reality fairly quickly. I'm not. Good. Then there's no reason for you to work alone on this. And this is the first scene of, um... You think Tamsin... The first indication of, uh... More than that. I think Tam... Aside to Brogan, I think the series might have benefited from if we had seen more of it. Draco, but to kill him. We'll get into that as it happens. Oh, a doggy roaming the streets of Demeter City. Even though dogs cannot live in Demeter City for there is Creon fever. But he seems to be managing okay. Rogan, it's me, Tamsin. We need to talk. Yeah, Nigel Gregory was uh, a shadow security man in in the Psycho Bombs, and he was uh, Cully the Hippie in uh, The Sound of Silence. It's all right. Don't shoot. I'm surrendering. So you made the anonymous call yourself? What's the matter, Tamsin? Your killer turn on you? My killer? No. And his uh, costume here, I think, ended up in the recent uh, Eubanks auction. For me? Right. I don't know what it does or who it is. All I know is it killed Draco. I demand protection. You can demand squat. 
Here we go. After you, that's your problem. You hired it. That's not true. I'm telling you. I don't know anything about it. I'm telling you, you're gonna pay for my partner's death. And you wanna know something? I'd just as soon let the cyborg do the job. You would this this darker edged broken this. You're a good cop, you play by the rules. Not anymore. Oh, there we go. I like that. I really like that, Brogan. I, I don't know if maybe that's the, the way Ted Shackford would have preferred to play it. It doesn't mean a damn thing to me. The only thing you've got to... This slightly manic energy now. He's, he's, you know, he's lost Haldane. It's almost getting to the point where he's got nothing to lose. I don't know! Brogan! And now he's hitting him. Brogan, stop it. It's me. And now he's got a pistol under his chin. I don't know if this would be a good character as the lead for a family show. And his lies. I want the truth. But so do I, but this isn't the way, and you know it. For a slightly more adult series, maybe Maybe there's something you could do with this um this unhinged broken. I don't know. But it is interesting to see just how uh You know, it it would only take like the span of a day for our Brogan to go completely off the deep end. I find that so interesting. And um, it, it, rarely did we ever revisit that. I think um, Side swipe by the, the closest we'd get to that is um, the Forever Beetle later on when uh, when his friend is uh, is killed. He goes a bit manic after that, but... Um, Inside a nice safe cell, okay? We aim to please. Not as much as he does here. This is good stuff. Brogan, take a look at this. The analysis of that piece of metal from the cyborg. We just got it from the Hawking Laboratories. They say they'd never seen anything like it. They say they don't know how an alloy of those elements, in those proportions, could ever have been made. Well, someone did it. Yeah, but the top metallurgists on Earth swear they couldn't even begin to duplicate this stuff. They wouldn't know where to start. Oh, another clue? Dr. Grant just called from the hospital. She wants to speak to you in person. I can't explain it, Lieutenant, but his condition is improving. He's still comatose, but... His heart rate stabilized and his tissue degeneration has stopped. And you don't know the cause? Well, we think we know the cause, but we still can't figure it out. Uh, we found an unusual substance in Ross's bloodstream. From the absorption rate, we estimate it was given to him about 39 hours ago. That's when the cyborg broke in here and killed Took. And this gives us some idea of the time frame that this, uh, well, this episode is happening over. Have you analyzed the drug? Thoroughly, but, well, uh, it's a compound you've never seen before. Too complex for you to synthesize? Well, that's right. Even given the formula, we couldn't make that drug. The technology doesn't exist yet. I don't get it. Why would that monster give Ross a drug that would help him? It's an interesting question because I'm not entirely sure, within the context of what we later find out, why the cyborg has that kind of drug on his person. Considering that he, um, because the technology doesn't exist. well, again, given by what we later see, he wasn't actually intending to do what he did there. A time traveler? Ah. It would explain a lot of things, don't you think? I think you've got a hell of an imagination. Frankly. Sell it to the BBC. They can put Michael French and Chloe Annette in it, and uh, the other thing I want to know about it is it'll be another 1990s sci-fi blockbuster for them. Oh, back to the station house. Everyone's milling around. Just another normal day until oh I love this shot from from really low looking up at the cyborg um, didn't quite frame it close enough to avoid those those tan jeans but uh, where's Tams? Egan Fredo no Fredo's gone. Orin Romek and uh, 
a random handful of extras diving for cover. Remex down. Oh no. Random extra to the rescue. And I like that that random extra dies with, um, well, a sound effect you're going to hear right now. I think they reused Podley's scream from that for the extra who died just before Podley died. Proceed to precinct 88. It's a nice fall from the balcony for Podley there. Oh, and Orin's dead as well. Intruder alert. Security breach. Intruder alert. Now, what did Slomo really think he was going to achieve there? Oh, no more than this random extra. Also dead. Cyborg's uh, not interested in the prisoners. Some nice, uh, nice acting from the extras there, actually, in the um, holding cells, which is not often I, I say that about the extras in Space Precinct. A lot of the times they look, they just look terrible. Oh my god. But I suppose nothing could look as bad as this. Everybody dead. It's heading for the cells. Except Romek. Looking for Tamsin. Oddly enough, um, played by the actor who we know would most like to have left the series, Lou Hirsch. Oh. And I also find myself thinking about in this scene, just to make it even sadder, the family members of, um, you know, Orin's mum, Fredo's wife and daughter, Podley's wife and daughter, finding out that, uh, you know, that their loved ones uh, were gone. While the cyborg is heading for the cells. Um, although Romek knew that, he apparently hasn't alerted the cell guards. More dead bodies in the corridor. Here comes our good friend Sasha the cell guard. It's all clear around here. With a different voice. Yeah. Is he going to stop the cyborg? Hey! He is not. Get out, Sasha. He gave us the reliable... Um, just, oh, we weren't expecting him to do anything, and uh, he did even less than that. Cyborg's taking shots at Tamsin in his cell. Don't me! And Tamsin is dead. Oh, stray shots exposed some electrical cabling. Stay back, Brogan. Castle's gonna see what she can do with that. And get clubbed in the face. Here we go. I'll be back for you, Brogan. You created me and you're gonna die for it. That's such a cool line. Uh, reminiscent of uh, a line from a, an, another feature film, in fact. But I remember so clearly um, the trailer for this episode when it went out on BBC Two. And oddly enough, it turned up on YouTube um, a couple of months ago. With that line. Oh, I remembered it so clearly. Transported from another time. Rocked by an unknown force, the hunter and the hunted battle it out. A time to kill. Space Precinct, Monday at 6 on BBC Two. I'll be back for you, Brogan. You created me and you're gonna die for it. Anyway, Cyborg has escaped. And basically, everybody on the station house is dead. Except with the possibility of Romek. So... Now that everyone he cares about is dead, Brogan thinks uh, maybe it's time to send his family away. Stay here with you. No. Now listen to me. Listen to me. And I suppose, although there's a part of me, the part of me that really doesn't like Brogan's family, I would have liked maybe to have seen them get blown to bits. I'm scared. I don't think it would have, um, I think probably that would have been a step too far. Going to a safe place. 
Why do we have to go? Not only for the, the, the children in the audience watching, but uh, also... Then how come Daddy's staying? It would, it would just be something too big for, for the broken character to deal with within the story. Well, I'm not taking the bat. Come on. Uh, Matt has to leave his baseball bat. Now Brogan's saying goodbye. And he's uh, here comes my favourite I hate Sally moment. Call or try to contact me. Don't discuss with anyone where you're going. I know the drill. We'll be fine. It's going to be all right. No. No, it won't be all right. Because even if you make it through this, you've crossed a line. We can't go back to the way things were before. Sure we can. That is just... Although, you know, later in the story we find out this is um, not the way things are going to be from now on. That line... Let's go. Let's go. I, I can't even begin to express my disgust for the Sally character at that line. All of Brogan's friends and colleagues have been slaughtered. And Sally turns around to him and says, You've crossed a line. You've gone too far. Okay, he's getting a bit unhinged, but he's not actually... We haven't seen him behaving any differently, to his family at least. So I just don't get that. In in what reality does Sally Brogan watch her husband's friends, people she knows, get bumped off one by one and then turn around to him and say, It's your fault. Oh, I, I think that's one of those moments that absolutely breaks a character. And you don't get them too often in, in Anderson shows, but that from that moment on, I have got basically no sympathy for Sally in any situation, knowing that that is her response to this kind of scenario. And I'm getting a bit angry. I can feel myself getting a bit angry there, but it's like, oh, just the thought, you wouldn't want Sally as a wife. I wouldn't want Sally as a wife. But I do like these uh, these contrasting montages of the cyborg and Brogan preparing for their upcoming um, final showdown. Cyborg's taken his arm off to um, to tinker with his gun. Meanwhile, Brogan's um, hiding all the family photos, setting up uh, electrical traps under rugs. And while the, the, the story of this episode is, is largely inspired by... Oh, I love that this is an absolutely enormous gun that Brogan's got here. It's like the biggest gun in the universe. Um, is inspired by a, a certain series of, of Hollywood films. The look of the cyborg... I think owes a lot to the the Borg from Star Trek, and it's a shame that this came out when it did because the cyborg I think actually looks better than most of the Borg that you see that you had seen on um, on Star Trek: The Next Generation on television up to this point. But then this was just before Star Trek: First Contact came out, and suddenly the Borg had been completely redesigned. So it's like, oh, if that hadn't happened, this cyborg would have looked at least the top half would look so much more superior to the TV Borg. Unfortunately, the, the redesign kind of um, leaves him in the shade a bit. Yeah, I still can't get over those uh, those tan jeans of his. Anyway. Cyborg is cutting into the uh, Brogan household unit. He's getting in through the garden and the back window. That's it. One shot at the uh, the electrical panel in the Brogan household shuts down all the power for the, uh, the space suburb. And the cyborg's gun is jammed, and um, 
because he's the main character, Brogan can survive getting punched in the face by the cyborg in the same way that um, that Castle couldn't. The trap won't work without power. Although Orin did earlier, didn't he? Trap. Oh, he booby-trapped the gun. On the assumption that the cyborg's gun would fail, I guess. Beating him up with a gun. Now we're down on the floor again. What else can we grab? The baseball bat. It's the only time I've ever been grateful I have kids. Throwing him onto the sofa. Let's see who you are. Ross? That's right, Brogan. The boy you crippled. Now a man. Jane was right. You are a time traveler from 30 years in the future. I did come out of the coma. <sighs> yep, we've um, we've gone down the uh, the Terminator route. Artificial body. They give you. I'm not sure if this actor is. Um, and when I found a scientist to it, is the same one who plays Ross. I know Brogan recognizes him instantly. I don't know if it's. You're to prevent the catastrophe that. May if it's that actor, I want to say his name's Stephen Billington. Who didn't change history. I did, but not enough. And another actor is credited as, as playing the cyborg. Those men fired the shot that knocked me into the acid bath. The third technician. The first man you killed. Yes. An odd um, odd way for Brogan to describe that character. Third technician. Did he read the script? Me in the acid. That's, that's the way the script would read. Would read but, um, all of you. You've had about all the revenge you're going to get. Now it's my turn. I do like that idea as well, though, that he came back to change history and he he did a bit, but not enough. And finish me. And now he's stuck, sort of, you know, damage control to uh, limit the effect of what happened. This time travel device, where is it? Why? Because this timeline has to be set right. And again, one of the few Jerry Anderson episodes to involve time travel. There's another way. Let me go back. You can't undo that. Even though it only really comes into play in the, like, last five minutes of the episode. The device is built into this belt. The calibration's locked into the exact time coordinates. It's a goofy noise. Just press that. For a fairly goofy looking device, actually. When I get there, I'm gonna have to stop you from interfering. Use one of these power packs. They contain enough of a charge to disable me. Good luck. Ah, oh, they're all friends again. And it's off to the past. And then we get our first clue of what the uh, the earthquake was about. That was the arrival of a time traveler from the future. I, I didn't do anything. So Brogan's now outside the warehouse, looking in. We need to get a statement from you, and then you're free to go. At himself and his colleagues. All right, let's go. Come on, moving out. Pre-arrival of the cyborg. There's the cyborg. Luckily, Cyborg of the Future told him how to defeat Cyborg from the past. Slam one of his own power packs into him. Oh, it's worked. He's down. There's still... You! In the back! Drop it! Third technician. Middle-aged man, white hair. Uh, that's it. Good Ray, the third technician has been defeated. Well, it sure sounded like you. Yeah, well, it wasn't. Um, must have come from outside. I'll go check it out. You've ruined my mission. No. The future has been changed. We're ceasing to exist. We've accomplished your mission. I like as well that Brogan only just sees 
the other timeline before it disintegrates. What was it? I'm not sure. <laughs> For a minute, I thought I saw myself. I like the way this ending as well makes it clear that absolutely everyone is okay. Look, Took's got dialogue, and there's Ross, and uh... Station with me and give a statement. It shouldn't take too long. Well, that's no problem. Even the empty cardboard boxes remain undisturbed. Very grateful to you. No, no, you did the hard part. You turned down Tamsin's offer. <laughs> well, I said the words, but to be honest, I'm not quite sure what I was really going to do. I can't say I wasn't tempted. Well, if there were a law against that, we'd all be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about a hug? Oh, it's all so nice. Well done, Brogan. Thank you, sir. Oh, that, that grudging respect that was so freely given in the other timeline. Technically speaking, that wasn't an earthquake. Okay, Orin. It was an outerquake. Yeah. Ah, quibbles. None of you were even the least bit scared. Banter. It's like nothing ever happened. So how about you, Haldane? And I suppose, in that sense, this is a very odd episode in the sense that really only the last four minutes of it actually happened in terms of the show. I don't know. But I think it's worth it to get where we end up. For some reason I was thinking that um, we never really appreciate what we have until it's gone. Oh. Now that's profound. If you ever quit the force, you should consider teaching philosophy. Yeah, you could start writing greeting cards. I'm sure you got a big future in that. Oh, there's one for the shop. Yeah, shop.jerryanderson.co.uk, Lieutenant Brogan, um, you never appreciate what you have until it's gone cards. That's it. So, that was Time to Kill, which is um, oh, one of the best episodes of Space Precinct, one of the early, uh, earliest triumphs of the series. I, um, It is almost a shame that um, basically all of it never happened, but to see particularly the character of Brogan go on that kind of journey to see what would have happened if he was put in that situation where literally he lost everybody oh it's just so so satisfying and some awesome action sequences in here some nice model stuff particularly that that early shootout in the um, in the warehouse is really something special I think even uh, Ted Shackelford himself was like wow this is um this is really good stuff. So, um, yeah, it's you know, a bit derivative of a certain uh, film series, but um, for what it produced for Space Precinct, one of the earliest successes of the show, one of the most memorable characters in the cyborg, just a really nice slice of Jerry Anderson's sci-fi action. Whoa, oh, time, time to, to kill him. Oh, a bit of Space Precinct. That's a fantastic way to start the new year. Yeah. Love it. I cool. absolutely loved that episode when I was a kid because well, obviously yeah. I was there when they were filming it. And as I've said yeah. to you before, there's that great shot in the station house where the cyborg kills Podley and Podley yes. goes over the banisters and, and hits yes. the desperate. And obviously, and I watched them do the top part of the fall into a big stack of cardboard boxes. I remember there was quite a crowd, wasn't there? For there that. was, and I was part of that crowd. I guess you nice. were as well. I uh, must have been, yeah. You may have been in the scene and actually acting. Or, we, or was your character dead by that point? Well, I think matter, I might have died already. It was only the top half anyway. But, yeah. Um, yeah, that yeah. was that was a very exciting thing to watch. And at the time, I had no idea what it was for. Sure. Because you know, I, yep. I, didn't, I didn't see the scripts in advance nope. or anything like that. I just, nope. as far as I'd seen, I'd just seen Podley killed. Yes, indeed. That's right. It was very cool. Uh, and, I, and I remember seeing the cyborg's armour 
on a sofa somewhere, you know, before uh-huh. it was before he put it on or after he'd taken it off, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. was very exciting, very cool. And he had, had that laser on the, the helmet. That's right, yes. Which I remember being sort of shone through uh, dry ice and stuff. Anyway, but yeah. seeing as you were actually in the show rather than just observing it as a small child, what are your memories oh, yeah. of Time to Kill, Richard? I was in Space Precinct, wasn't I? Sometimes I completely forget about there that. We all. Yeah, my main memory was lying on the floor in the warehouse scene at the very beginning of the show, which seemed to take about a week. So it wasn't a particularly exciting time for me. Uh, Alan Birkinshaw, of course, directed that, who we spoke to last year on the podcast. Yes, in Can't pod remember. Uh, 104 mm. or something. I Very know. good. Yeah, yeah. No, so I just if you made want that to know up. The, uh, oh, okay. Uh, if you want to know uh, what it was like to, to, to make that episode, it, that might be worth listening to again. Mm. But yeah, it's a, it's a fan favourite. People always remember the cyborg from Time to Kill. It's one of those sort of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey episodes. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, you know, is, is heavily indebted to, to Terminator, isn't it? Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, some nice moments and uh, really, you know, what episode? Oh gosh, twelve, I think, eleven, twelve. Don't know. But the, I it, it was the series was oh, was it? Well, by then it was sort of we felt like it was finding its feet a bit. Yeah. So I remember it being a very a very happy time and a great episode to shoot. But a good a good lesson to learn: never leave an empty, uh, sorry, an open topped acid bath around yes no especially when there's the potential of time travel in the future where you end up becoming the monster that yeah yeah that that's right because how many times have we left the lid to our acid baths open at home absolutely and then led to our own demise in the future assassination of those around us (laughs) exactly yeah Thank you, Chris. There'll be more randomizer next week. I expect yes. it'll be less timey-wimey because there aren't that many uh, Jerry Anderson time travel episodes unless you go into no. a bit of Terror Hawks with Lord Tempo. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess there's a bit of there's a bit in Scarlet, I think New Scarlet. I suppose there's a bit of uh, in Classic Scarlet 2, is it op- uh, Operation Time? I'm just making up a name right. now, but that one. Oh, great, okay. Yeah, so there is a bit, actually, but yeah. it's funny, well, isn't maybe it? we should do a, a sort of a timey-wimey podcast one day. <laughs> Into the future or the past? Yeah, well, a bit of both, perhaps. Mix it up. Right, well, I'll look forward to uh, that in pod 4,412 coming next week, possibly, depending on when you're listening to this. That's Uh, right. Right, that's the end of the randomizer, and that's the end, therefore, of this podcast. Richard, have you got any closing remarks before we leave these lovely people to their lives? I'm just going to head back to our Facebook group uh, just for a moment, because uh, Hmm. Jenny Davis says, uh, me and the others at the Potter's Arms group, got chatting about all the different foods we've been having for New Year's Eve. So it's a couple of weeks ago, and they've come up with some Jerry Anderson-themed food. Wasp waffles, cham-cham chowder, trapped in the pie, Captain Blue Cheese, the Path of Destruction special, give or stake a million, uh, you know, that kind of thing, current bun probe, end of the rocky road, the Duchess potato assignment, uh, oh. Sloppy Joe 90. I mean, they went on oh. and on and on. Uh, so all good fun there. And finally, uh, then in that case, over to our YouTube channel where people have been leaving messages beneath the uh, Terror Hawks, uh, Battle Hawks, Century 21 Tech Talk, hosted by Ed Straker, otherwise known as John Coleshaw. CJ List says, I love the fact that Straker would uh, be aware of these other organisations formed to fight beings from another planet long after shadows ceased. Does that mean that the uh, Terror Hawk organisation is an advanced version of that organisation? They certainly share some similarities. Yeah. Hmm. Certainly possible, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're not we're not saying that 100%, but, yeah, you yeah. know, bearing in mind yeah. it is, you know, it was General Straker talking about the Terror Hawks organisation. It makes sense that he does know. That's right. Yeah. Well, interesting. And finally, uh, yeah, another YouTube user <laughs> who's X-O-F-E-R-I-F 
Zoferif, perhaps. When the house splits open to allow Battlehawk to launch, mm. what happens to all the stuff inside the house? Like, what if Kate Kestrel's playing the piano in the living room at that precise moment? That really used to bother me when I was little. Yeah, it makes a terrible mess. really does. <laughs> it must do. Yeah, well, we actually right. see it in the Christmas episode, I think, don't we? Ah, um, but Great. yes, it, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But you know, a, lot, no. a little bit like the rotating of Thunderbird 1 down the launch ramp. Yeah, there are these things is. where it doesn't have to make sense because, no. you know, it's a bit of fun. But uh, Exactly. A bit yeah, like the podcast. Watch the... <laughs> it doesn't no have sense. to make sense. Because <laughs> uh, occasionally it's a bit of fun. But yeah, yeah, watch the Christmas episode, I think, and uh, you'll see um, you'll see Einstein at a jaunty angle with stuff falling all around him because they forgot oh, to close nice. the White House, which makes no sense in itself. Yeah, anyway, yeah, sure. <laughs> so speaking of things that make no sense in themselves, uh, yes. this has been the Jerry Anderson Podcast, episode 135. Oh, I said episode rather than pod. How unusual. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Mm. I won't say that again. It's weird. Pod no, 135, pod 135. That's the end. Next week will be pod 136 with more from Catherine Shell and more from me, Jamie Anderson, him, Richard James, and him over there, Chris, Chris Dale. Yeah. Oh, look, he's putting the carpet back down now. I don't know what he was doing beneath the floorboards there. But thank you for uh, tidying up after yourself, Chris. I'd recommend not walking over that bit of uh, carpet yeah. if I were you. I suspect it's a, it's, a, it's a pit of snakes and stuff oh, or something. Okay, great. Thanks, Chris. Right, let's go before we go completely mad. All right. Have a great and safe and healthy and happy week, everyone. And we'll see you for Pod 136 next time. Goodbye. See you then. Bye. Richard James. Yes. I've got a query for you. Oh, no. If you had to yeah. get into one of the scrapes that Captain Scarlet gets into in the closing yeah. title art cards oh. with the best hope of escape, what would it be? Would you be in the toxic goo, under falling no. crates, falling from a car, being drowned <sighs> with sharks around you? God, that's being really run over tough. by a tank? I think, I think the spikes... Oh, you want you I want think, to try and get yeah, out of the spike situation? I would. I, it would be a bit like sort of a crystal maze challenge, wouldn't it? <laughs> a bit of a gory crystal maze. Well, no, because I'd get out of it, obviously. That's that's the point, isn't it? Well. Shall I tell you how I'd get out of it? Go on. Well, so I'm, I guess I, I'm wearing my Captain Scarlet uniform. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so I've got the tunic. Yep. And I've got the zip. Yes. And the zip's got that little ring pull thing, hasn't it? It has indeed. Yeah, right. Well, I would detach that. Yeah. And I would insert that little ring pull into the very edge of the descending ceiling. So I'd reach up through the spikes and I would just lodge it there so that as the ceiling came down, it kind of nudged against it. What to jam? Ground to a halt. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah? you're jamming wall, spike walls, walls of spikes yeah. is your plan.
Yes. Okay, well, obviously, I've now set up that just outside uh, your uh, oh. recording suite. So oh, if you gosh, want to go yes. give that a try, oh, I wish I you the very now. best of luck. And we'll okay. work out whether you were successful well, or not next week oh, for Pod 136. Hang on. Jamie. Good luck. I, I haven't got a zip. Bye. Jamie. You have been listening to the Jerry Anderson Podcast. Wasn't it fun? You have been listening to an Anderson Entertainment production.